1: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
2: So let me explain. When I asked our director earlier today for last Sunday's numbers of views in whole or in part, he told me it's 760,000. A little bit down, he said, because of the World Cup. And I'm sure that that will be true again this evening. And that's why I'm going to keep you up to date with the Germany-Spain result throughout the show. But then somebody sent me a pirate clip of mine from last Sunday's Mother of All Talk Shows on the Chinese-owned platform TikTok. At first, we couldn't see how many views it had. But we did see that it had 55,000 likes. Curious and curious, we dug deeper and discovered that that pirate clip not posted by me or us has 1.2 million views of a part of last Sunday's show. Now, why do I tell you that? First of all, because I'm pretty chuffed at that number, but more importantly, and I'm saying this to any Chinese friends that are watching, you know that if I had posted that clip, it would either have been taken down by TikTok, or so violently suppressed algorithmically, that it would have been lucky to get 300 views. But when someone else puts up a lesser quality version, pirate version, on your platform, it gets 1.2 million views. Sort it out, China. Sort it out, TikTok. You're making a fool of yourselves rather than me, because people will find a way to watch my output, as that pirate clip shows. I'm mentioning it not particularly to single out TikTok, though for obvious reasons I'm pretty bitter about being suppressed by a Chinese platform. But Elon Musk, in his takeover of Twitter, promised many things, some of which he has already delivered, and I'm hoping he'll deliver the rest before too much longer. But he opined today that the situation under the previous regime that ruled Twitter was much worse than we know, and that the more he looks into it, and I'm quoting him, the more horrifying it becomes. Twitter was an organized conspiracy against the public interest before Elon Musk took over. There was whole-scale, highly-organized, intelligence agency directed, suppression of people with inconvenient views. There was a hegemony of liberal progressive views, which nowadays means pro-NATO, pro-EU, pro-LGBTQI narratives and agendas, pro-trans agendas, pro-greenery, and quackery, and all the things that you can associate with the man buns and man bags that used to hang out in San Francisco at very great expense to the company. He's gone through it like a dose of salts. At one point last week, he was running Twitter with 55 employees, which makes you wonder what the other 6,900 were doing, beyond filling their pockets and their tummies with quinoa, and uh, ever so achingly green milkshakes, but not really milk, milk substitutes. You know what I mean? What what would you call it? An almond shake, maybe? They were the most pampered uh, workforce on the entire planet. But they did what they were supposed to do, which was to suppress and distort many, many people, those that they could not successfully deal with by suppression and distortion, say, like me, just by capping my numbers ruthlessly, by squeezing the circulation of my output by as much as 90%. I'm not making that number up. My lawyers have already calculated it. But those that they could not twist or blunt, they simply banned, including the then President of the United States, Donald J. Trump. In a pre-election period, the most powerful and important elected person on the earth was kicked out of the public square by the man buns and man bags in San Francisco. And he's not tweeting now that he's been reinstated. Fair enough, that's entirely his business. I am not a Donald Trump supporter, about which more later, but uh, I'm glad that he was reinstated for the reason Elon Musk has explained, that it was an unjust exclusion and it reduced the credibility of Twitter amongst at least half, maybe more than half, of the United States electorate, the most important electorate on the globe on the basis that they choose the leadership of the most powerful And richest country on the earth. So big stakes when you ban the sitting president of the United States of America. Having said which, I'm uh, not as ruthlessly capped in numbers as I was, but still ruthlessly capped. My reach is still being ruthlessly squeezed, just not quite as much as before. But the fake label Uh, atop every single one of my tweets, even a tweet about my two-year-old eating ice cream, is still there, falsely claiming that I am a part of Russian state-affiliated media. It's untrue. Elon Musk knows that it's untrue. Twitter has known that it was untrue through my legal action, which has already proved that it is untrue, but it is still there. So if you're watching Mr. Musk, I'm still part of your unfinished business. And until you remove that label and give me the Tesla that I have claimed in damages, and if you don't hurry up, my wife will need one too, then my action against Twitter will continue. I want to stay talking about media just for a minute. That uh, 1.2 million clip that went viral on TikTok, was about the festival of Orientalism taking place in the international media over the World Cup in Qatar. Quick parenthesis again, because a lot of people don't hear that which they don't want to hear. I'm banned from Qatar over Syria. I have not been on Al Jazeera television for a decade, although before that I used to be on it every other day. And I'm not exaggerating. I, if I turned up in Qatar, would not be permitted access to the country. Unlike all these enemies of Qatar that are living up high on the hog in the seven-star hotels in Doha, whilst spending every waking hour seeking to find something with which to attack their host, Qatar, whilst picking up their checks from the media organizations that have sent them. So I'm not here shilling for Qatar. But if you are going to claim that the biggest abuser of human rights on the planet is Qatar, I'm going to call you a liar. If you're going to claim that next year, in the United, next uh, World Cup in four years' time, in the United States and Canada, will somehow be a cleaner World Cup, than it is in Qatar, I'm going to call you a liar. I'm going to call you a hypocrite or at best I'm going to call you so pig ignorantly stupid that you shouldn't actually be on television in the first place. The United States has invaded and occupied 50 countries since the end of the Second World War with just 3% of the world's population. It has 25% of the world's prison population and most of those are Black. It has black prisoners in chain gangs working for the prison industrial complex. Every other day, there's a mass shootout of innocent people, shoppers, kids in schools, people dancing in nightclubs, are mass murdered in the United States because mental illness is so widespread and access to automatic weapons so widespread that. You've forgotten about the last atrocity because it has been superseded by the next atrocity. The United States has a torture camp illegally situated in somebody else's country in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. It performed acts of torture. Obama, we tortured some folks in Bagram Air Base, in Abu Ghraib Prison, in Iraq, in the living experience of every single twisted hack, now currently unable to deliver any broadcast without reference to Qatar's human rights record. And some of them openly looking forward to the next World Cup in the United States of America, at which they won't have to talk, they say openly, about human rights any longer. And of course that's true, but not for the reasons that they seek to imply. And the festival goes on. Jürgen Klinsmann, who, I must say, is Britain's favourite German. He was full of joie de vivre as a player. He played brilliantly for Tottenham Hotspur. He lit up stadia all over this country. He's cheerful and blonde and Germanic. Until you hear what it is that he's actually got to say. And what he had to say this week about Iran and Carlos Quiros, full disclosure, former deputy manager of my own team, Manchester United, twice deputy manager of Manchester United, was such orientalist slander, he ought to be banned from ever appearing on television again. And FIFA ought to kick him out from any positions that he holds in FIFA. He said that cheating and feigning injury was part of the Iranian culture. He said that lying was part of the Iranian culture. He said that no wonder Quiros is their manager, thus effectively libeling Carlos Quiroz also. He compounded that slander umpteen times after he issued it on the BBC of all places, and yet he's still grinning on the BBC this evening as I speak. His orientalist slander of Arabs and of Persians is in microcosm exactly what I've been talking about these last weeks and months. They cannot bear that Qatar is so rich and that it can afford to buy the World Cup and stage the World Cup and set its own rules about alcohol, for example, though having seen today a video of England and Wales fans punching each other senseless, drunkenly, in the streets of Tenerife, of all places, in advance of the showdown between England and Wales in the World Cup this coming week, I can well understand why Qatar banned alcohol to be freely available, at least, on the streets of their country in this World Cup. But they cannot bear it that Qatar can own Harrods, can own the Shard. London Transport banned Qatar's advertising of the World Cup because of its attitude to LGBTQ plus issues. And so Qatar has announced, and I hope they go through with it, that they will urgently review their investments in London. Why should Qatar pump billions of pounds into the London economy when they're so persona non grata they can't even pay through the nose to get their adverts for the World Cup that everybody in London is watching on the underground trains and in the subway stations? You see where I'm going here. This is racism. It is hatred of Arabs. It is hatred of their religion, Islam. It is jealousy. It is envy. It is everything ugly that goes against anything that remains of the ethos of football. My own children are asking me, why is everyone on television criticizing Qatar? Now, they're very young, I don't want to give them the lecture I'm giving you, but I don't know the short answer. They're tuning in to watch football, and every single time they have to listen to these Orientalist lectures about Qatar and by extension. Well done Morocco today, by the way, beating the old colonials 2-0. Belgium, the worst colonialists of them all, not in terms of quantity, but In terms of, how shall I put it, numbers of people mass murdered by deliberate policy and design on the continent of Africa. So I think I could say Morocco struck a blow in memory of Patrice Lumumba today. At least that's how it felt to me. But here's the rub. I told you I'm banned from Qatar. I'm banned from Qatar because having once been a hero in Qatar, Having once been a virtually daily communicant on Al Jazeera television, having been metaphorically carried on their shoulders for my role in opposing the Anglo-American invasion of Iraq, I refused to support the Anglo-American invasion of Syria. I stood by the Syrian Arab Republic. I opposed the alphabet soup of Islamist fanatic Extremism, throat cutting, mass murdering extremism that Qatar was supporting and paying for billions, billions of dollars for. Never mind the shard, you should see what they put into the people that were supplying the weapons and the wherewithal to ISIS and Al Qaeda and their cousins in the jihadist army in Syria. That's why and banned from Qatar. And that was bad enough. I'm prepared to let bygones be bygones on that, because after all, hey, Hamas have done so. After having joined the jihadist effort to topple the government in Damascus, Hamas have moved back to Damascus and are presumably again eating from the plate that they once kicked over on their way out on their way to Doha in Qatar. But they're back in Damascus now. Sing hallelujah. I like to see the Arabs getting together. I like to see the Muslims getting together. Which brings me to my last point. I never watch Al Jazeera, now that I'm never on it. But I have been watching it, for reasons of World Cup duties, over the last few days. It is an hourly broadcast against Iran, its next-door neighbor, using exactly the same tropes against Iran that are used against Qatar by exactly the same people. And I've got to say to you, Mr. Al Jazeera, Sheikh Qatar, the people who are targeting you are the same people that are targeting Iran. Are you so blind that you cannot see that? And the same people targeting you and targeting Iran were the people who targeted Syria. And the same people who are targeting Syria targeted Libya, targeted Iraq, targeted Afghanistan. Yet you are serving them by your endless propaganda seeking to foment. Regime change in Iran. Lastly, as our poll makes clear, the mother of all showdowns takes place on Tuesday. It's a football match, but it's not just a football match. It is the United States of America against the Islamic Republic of Iran. That's if the USA is not kicked out of the World Cup for having broken a fundamental tenet this day of the World Cup's regulations, which forbids and precludes any squad from defacing the flag of any other participating country in the tournament. But the American World Cup team have just defaced the Iranian flag on social media. They changed it. They altered it. They took out its centerpiece and put in their own LGBTQA plus, is there an A in it? LGBTQ plus agenda on the Iranian national flag in the official Twitter account of the United States of America. Now, of course, I know that they will not be kicked out, and therefore the mother of all battles takes place on Tuesday. I like the American football team, just as I like the American people. It's The state and its agencies, I hate. But I really like the American football team. In other circumstances, I would have liked them, say, to defeat England uh, earlier this week, but they got a very creditable draw. But the winner takes all on Tuesday. The loser goes home. And so, I'm asking, which team are you? Team Iran or Team USA? It's with the heaviest of hearts. My dear American friends, I've got to be with Team Iran. It's the mother of all talk shows, and we've got some great guests for you coming up. Stay tuned.
1: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
2: Mother of all World Cup showdowns. You are A, Team Iran, B, Team USA. Thousands of people have voted. Get busy. Now, my next guest, uh, rather unusually, uh, requires to remain anonymous and so cannot appear on the screen, which is a very great pity because the Sirius report that he represents is an independent website analyzing economics and geopolitics and with a big following on social media, such as the quality of their analysis and reportage. Uh, Paul, from The Sirius Report, welcome to the mother of all talk shows.
4: Well, good evening, George, and thank you very much for having me on. It's much appreciated.
2: Uh, Tell us then what The Sirius Report does, and what's your take on the great issues of today?
4: Obviously, we focus on the two aspects, is the rise of multipolarity, which we've been discussing on the podcast for six years. And the flip side is that what we call the demise of unipolarity, which is US hegemony, the US dollar, and basically US influence in the world. So that covers geopolitics, economics, and finance. So we look and scour the world to understand what's happening in Asia, Africa, South America. So basically the global south, which effectively is what I call the where the birth of multipolarity is. The west has not yet caught on to it and probably won't catch on to it anytime soon. And then the flip side is we analyse what I call the demise of unipolarity, which is the west. So Europe, North America, they call that Japan, South Korea, Australia, possibly New Zealand. And that's in essence what we do. So we're always trying to look. For what we think are key pivotal moments, that so for example, when six years ago we, we said, look, you're going to see a key pivot of Saudi Arabia away from the United States and from the West, and they will join the multipolar world, and we're starting to see very clear evidence now of that move away from the West and the petrodollar to China and Russia. So that's just one small example of that.
2: Well, it was a very good example and uh, a, a, terrific, uh, a, ter- a terrific bit of farsightedness. People would have paid you good money for that advice uh, in the commercial world. It has been one of the most uh, significant shifts in the, in the last uh, period of 12, 18 months uh, that uh, Saudi Arabia, once a satrapy, once a puppet of the United States, has effectively left uh, the United States camp; it's still got a foot there, of course, but increasingly it sees its future in that multipolar uh, axis of which the Eurasian project, project is the is is the cornerstone or the the heartland. Uh, but there are others, aren't there? Uh, Turkey, for example, which spent many decades as a NATO pillar, as a, a potential. Uh, if you like, uh, takeoff la- take and landing point for war with uh, then Soviet Union, later Russia, uh, which uh, played uh, such a significant role in the early days of seeking to overthrow the Syrian Arab Republic. Turkey has also, like Saudi Arabia, effectively left the outfit. They've They've left town.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, notionally, Turkey's part of NATO still, but all intents and purposes it kind of isn't. Uh, Turkey has S-400s from the Russians and of course has TurkStream and because of the sanctions and the ongoing debacle with the West with respect to to Russia and the Ukraine war they're now proposing to put a gas hub into Turkey so Turkey becomes a major energy hub and likely at the expense of Europe going forward. So yes for sure Turkey is one of those nations like Saudi Arabia, I call them kind of key vassal states. You might throw Japan into that as well, and at some point Japan will continue to rotate away from the Western influence and towards multipolarity. Okay, there are a lot of issues it needs to resolve with China, for example, but it's a slow process. These things don't happen overnight, but I would say in the last five or six years, the amount of developments that have come about It has been at breakneck speed, if you were to put it in historical context.
2: Yeah, it's definitely accelerating. They're going to be left with just the Anglosphere, aren't they? Uh, At least four of the five eyes, or perhaps all five of those eyes, plus Israel. That's, That's really the empire's core now, isn't it? Because we can tell from the comments made, for example, by Mrs. Merkel yesterday, the Germans, and I think also the French, are growing tired of of this uh, role as vassal uh, to the United States Empire. And if the power isn't, the people are.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the Ukraine war has thrown up a lot of very interesting uh, developments, not least because of the fact that from the start of the war, the belief from the United States and the UK was, well, Russia will collapse economically very quickly, not understanding what Russia had been doing since 2014 when the Maidan started. They also thought that, uh, that the world would isolate Russia, which didn't happen. And they also thought in the process they could oust Putin very easily and the Russians would overthrow him. And of course, these were spectacularly bad miscalculations. And certainly, in I would say in the last few weeks, the Germans and the French, are absolutely correct, have started to reassess the relationship with the United States because, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is to subsidise the so-called nonsensical green revolution in the United States, what, what has happened is they're realising actually this is going to harm industry or what's left of industry in Europe. They're also very concerned about the fact that they were told, you know, you need to have an embargo on Russian oil and gas are with, and America's going, well, we'll provide you with gas, but they're going to charge three, four, five times the cost. And, of course, the Germans, the French, and the Europeans are going, hang on a minute, you're exploiting this you know, for, to make the financial gain. And, of course, the United States has sold tens of billions of dollars of arms to Ukraine because none of it's for free. It's all supposedly loans and in inverted commas, whatever that means in reality. So, yeah, most certainly we're at a point where, Europe's reassessing its relationship with the United States. I wouldn't say in totality. And of course, whilst nation states might do that, the problem you have is the bureaucrats and the technocrats. So the European Commission, who are very Atlanticist and very pro-United States, and you will want to effectively, for all intents and purposes, fight the Ukraine war to the last Ukrainians. So it's a complicated affair, but I would expect in the coming years for Europe to... Not totally sever relations with the United States, but the plan, I think, has always been at some point it will rotate east. Now, the big question is how, and really, logically, it's Germany. Germany, and that's a big ask, besides it's had enough of being a vassal state, then it might logically look to reassess its relationship in NATO and reassess its relationship in the European Union and whether it wants to have the European as a currency anymore, and it might go back to the Deutschmark. And these are kind of, if you look in history, the United States has always feared German rapprochement with Russia. And this goes back prior to even World War Two and prior to World War One. There's always been this concern that if Germany moves into to Eurasian camp, then the argument would be the United States has no reason to be in Europe anymore. Why? Why do we need NATO? Germany doesn't have a problem with Russia. There's no need to have NATO. The US influence in Europe vanishes almost overnight as a result of that.
2: Powerful point. Uh, you mentioned, of course, the elephant in the room, uh, the Ukraine. There seems to have been a bit of a run on the bank in the last couple of days in Ukraine. Can you educate us on that, Paul?
4: Well, unfortunately, as always happens in wars, the people of Ukraine are the ones who suffer the most. And we we now reach the point, okay, Russia's targeted all the infrastructure, so, you know, water, power, and the risk is we're going to have a monumental um, refugee crisis, which is a huge problem for Europe. So, for example, imagine if Kiev has to be abandoned, and even Ukrainians have said that is entirely possible. I'm not saying it will happen, but if you have to move three million Ukrainians out of Ukraine, where are you going to put them? It's impossible. Europe can't take them and the rest of Ukraine can't take them. So, the backdrop to all this is there's the Ukrainian economy is collapsing. So, it's very typical when people fear an economic financial collapse. It's very commonplace to get bank runs so people will queue up and want to draw all their money out because they're fearful that the bank might collapse. And unfortunately, that's the position Ukrainian people find them in. And that's, for me, is one of the Biggest travesties of the entire war is the West is very happy to say, well, we want to fight this ideological proxy war with Russia. We don't particularly care too much about the Ukrainian people in the process. We have huge amounts of uh, people in all over dotted all over Ukrainian cities without water at times, without gas and electric, likely food shortages, and this is just a crisis within a crisis. Never mind the fact that suffering a war and the consequences of that, they're also having to deal with the economic, financial and obviously societal fallout of what's going on. Are you surprised
2: that uh, these developments which are undoubtedly uh, underway, however little noticed in the British media they are, that Britain remains uh, airstrip one, uh, utterly and completely uh, loyal to the orders of even so uninspiring a U.S. president as Joe Biden, 80 years young. Uh, there's no sign of what we might call the German development, and France, and other places, Italy, uh, of people beginning to chafe at the American yoke uh, and even rise up against the American self-harm that they have forced on their country. But in Britain, it's business as usual, isn't it? The government will do and follow the old man wherever he wants to go.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And that's been the case the whole of my lifetime and probably yours as well, George. I mean, the problem is it's, it's one of those situations where the United States and the UK have invested so much political capital into the war with the idea okay the war started russia invaded uh, ukraine on the 24th february and their attitude was we're going to impose sanctions and they told the people look you might have to suffer a bit for the consequences of these sanctions but you're not going to suffer as much as russia we're going to crush russia economically financially we'll crush the ruble we'll isolate russia on the world stage as i said and we'll Depose Putin as the leader and because they had such power in their conviction without actually understanding the reality that that was never going to happen on the day the war started I made the point on twitter and said if the west follows through with all the threat of sanctions to the extent it intends to do so the west will collapse because it didn't grasp for one minute the boomerang effect of what these sanctions would do because Europe, particularly in Germany, is a great example. It depends on cheap energy, and Russia's provided it for decades, and more so in recent years with Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, which obviously never came online. And without that energy, Germany as a nation cannot function. it Therefore, it has huge inflationary problems because energy is the lifeblood of a nation. So when you look at it in the context of that then you get produced price inflation and inflation in everyday goods and of course it starts this hollowing out and de germany so the problem from the us and the uk's perspective is they invested all this political capital in tra- and then also trying to of course drag europe along in the process because at first europe was hesitant to put it mildly there were some nations going we're not really sure we, we, we agree with this because we're so dependent on energy and there was all different sort of ramifications from European nations' perspectives of what the fallout would be. But you've been in politics, George. You know this far, far better than I do. The problem you have is when you dig a hole for yourself that deep, you just keep digging. Because imagine if the United States and the UK turned around now to, to the West and said, well okay, we give up. we'll we have to have a negotiated peace settlement. In the eyes of NATO allies, that would be capitulation. I've long since argued, and if Russia wins the war, the ramifications will be the end of NATO, the end probably of the European unions existence. now, because it's going to have catastrophic effects on so many levels. And when you're on the other side of that equation, as the British and the Americans are, they're looking at this going, we just have to keep going. We have to hope somehow that the Russians will lose the war. And, of course, they, there was huge political capital made of the Kharkov offensive, which in reality was was them just taking control of territory Russia had no intention of keeping. There was villages. It's very flat land. In fact, it's very hard to defend. And the West made out Russia had lost the war. It was the same with Kherson and Kherson proved to be, from a Russian perspective, tactically the correct decision because they risked being cut off and they could have lost 20,000, 30,000 forces and maybe 100,000 ethnic Russians. They were simply not prepared to do that. So again, the West makes out this is the end of the war, but they're desperately trying to cling on to the idea that Russia is losing because of NATO allies in Europe going We're really not sure we can carry on with this. It's economically destroying us. It's destroying the financial system. We're worried about societal unrest because we have major societal unrest across European nations. What does that mean? Can our governments cope with that? Could governments collapse in nations? They're thinking about this and are very frightened about it. So yes, of course, Britain's going to stand there beside the United States. I would be very surprised for Britain to turn around to the US now and say, oh, well, actually we've had enough and we've, you're, you're on your own with this. And certainly there's evidence with regards to NATO forces, in inverted commas, being inside Ukraine. I think there's sufficient evidence to prove that, and the UK and the US. But there's the long unknown question, which the West really doesn't want to talk about, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 sabotage. But Who's responsible for that? And, and is Europe looking at this and looking at the UK and the US going, hang on, were you responsible for this? So the the way the war's been prosecuted by the West has been completely disastrous from perspective that they didn't sit there before the war started and go, OK, we may despise Russia. We may despise Russia's policy decisions to do with Donbass, but they didn't think for one second, if we implement these sanctions, what happens if it doesn't work? And if it doesn't work, what does that mean for us? And they didn't think about it because it's largely driven by ideological hatred. And if you make decisions of that geopolitical magnitude on that basis, then you're very likely to make spectacularly bad choices. And that's exactly what they've done.
2: Well, I've always said we're ruled not by James Bonds, but by Austin Powers. Paul, from the (coughs) Sirius Report, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Uh, Get your votes in. Let's go live to Qatar and talk to our World Cup correspondent, Issa Ali. Issa, what a week it's been, my goodness.
5: Absolutely, George. Great to see you.
2: Well, Germany I mean, Germany have gone one up against Spain. Uh, I must say, I don't want to see Germany out, uh, although they kind of deserve it. I don't want to see them go home uh, so early, so I'm, I'm reasonably happy about that. But the, the big political stories keep on suppurating, don't they? Yeah, I mean, look, this
5: is probably... The most political World Cup there's ever been. Uh, that's not by accident. That is because of, of course, uh, the un- unbridled, naked agenda that's been uh, thrown at Qatar as hosts in particular. And, of course, as well, uh, towards Iran with all the situation going on back home and the Western media in particular, the English hacks trying to use it as an opportunity to destabilise the Iranian team. And Carlos Kirosh, actually, the Iranian coach, doing a fantastic job at pushing back against that propaganda, uh, telling those BBC journalists and others, why are you asking me about politics in Iran? Why don't you go and ask Gareth Southgate about the situation in England or the American coach or whatever whatever it might be? And uh, we saw the response of the Iranian team after a poor performance in the first game, uh, preceded by the fact that the Iranian team didn't uh, sing the national anthem in that first game. They chose to sing it in the second game and look what happened. They uh, put in a stellar performance and now have a good chance to go through and even an outside chance of winning the group. But, uh, George, one thing I do want to do is uh, I am in Silk Silkwarkov, which is the market, the old market here in uh, Doha, and I want to give you a bit of a bird's-eye view of the vibes tonight because, of course, as we know, Morocco with a fantastic performance against Belgium, who are one of the highest-ranked teams in this competition, and it's just an endless sea of red tonight. So many Moroccans here just celebrating... Uh, victory, uh, many of them in the stadium earlier to see that uh, wonderful performance and uh, that was a performance that was celebrated by the King uh, the Emir of Qatar, he was in attendance and cheering, he's been cheering for all the Arab and Muslim teams Uh, he was happy with the Saudi win over Argentina happy uh, and in attendance of the Iran win over Wales and today again and again one thing that's been marked this whole tournament is the fact that uh, every game you see Endless Palestinian flags. Uh, Today, again, the Moroccan fans waving those Palestinian flags in the ground. And uh, that's been uh, going side by side with uh, all Israeli occupation media who have been here, uh, occupiers, uh, influencers from the occupied territories who are here. They're not welcome. They're being shunned, turned away. Uh, People are chanting Palestine to them. It's got to the point where those journalists now have to say they're from Germany or Ecuador just to get anyone to talk to them. And even then they're quickly rumbled. And uh, it's a key message in this. Some of the people who are giving it to those Israeli journalists are from countries whose governments have normalized relations with the uh, Zionist entity, including Morocco, of course. So despite what the leaders might be doing in those countries, the people of those countries will never accept the uh, existence of that occupying entity. And uh, it's being born very clearly. At this
2: world cup well uh, i'm glad you told us that and showed us uh, that it is a, a wondrous thing i opined after saudi arabia's epic and historic victory over argentina uh, that it would it would make every arab and every muslim in the world happy even those who really really don't like saudi arabia I was right about that, wasn't I? Yeah, I think to an extent, this is uh, <clears throat> this entire tournament has been
5: very key in uh, building those bonds of brotherhood between uh, Arab and Muslim peoples, and uh, getting those people to uh, realize that uh, all these differences between us, all over the world actually, not just in the uh, West Asia region, all of these differences are just lines on a map drawn by some colonialist or another, and that everyone is a brother to each other, and uh, as the uh, great Imam Ali says, the one who isn't your brother in religion is your equal in humanity. So uh, many people here uh, reaching across those bonds. Happy to see Saudi have been done well. Um, and just between us, a bit of an exclusive, uh, anyone that sees the Saudis is, uh, or the fans is encouraging them to carry those uh, Palestinian flags and trying to uh, build up that uh, sense of Arab brotherhood among them. Because, you know, back home the situation isn't easy. They are ruled by an iron fist by the crown prince there. And so as far as people here are concerned, you know, we have to raise that awareness even for those Arab youth who may not have that access to information that perhaps we'd hope them to have.
2: Well, who'd have thunk that this would be one of the results of this Orientalist rampage over Arab and Muslim culture and and, uh, and countries that I've been talking about to you and myself over the last couple of weeks, who would have thought that one of the outcomes of it would be to make the Arabs and the Muslims more united. Uh, but on that uh, subject, uh, you won't have heard my opening remarks. But as it happens, I never watch Al Jazeera, but I have been uh, during this World Cup. And I'm astounded that, that it, is, it is still mounting almost hourly, in fact, exactly hourly, assaults on Iran, fomenting uh, uh, political problems in Iran for the, in the service of the very same people that are targeting Qatar hourly over the World Cup. What's your take on that?
5: Um, I think it's it's clear that uh, relations between Qatar and Iran have improved markedly. Um, going back to the blockade uh, on Qatar, where Iran and Turkey were two of the countries that gave Qatar big support, not just in giving them food and other items into the country, but also a kind of implicit, if you will, uh, guarantee that they would never allow Saudi tanks to roll over the border. Um, unfortunately, Maybe that doesn't make its way to the editorial rooms of Al Jazeera. Some would say that, you know, it's a positive. It shows that, uh, you know, these companies aren't state-controlled, that there is an independent uh, policy there, if you will, an independent editorial room. But then that editorial room needs to be educated. Because, as you said, now is not the time to be uh, trying to score political or maybe even sectarian points over Iran. Now is the time to realize that the uh, people destabilizing Iran are the exact same people taking aim at Qatar. They're the exact same people, the same politics, the same ideology, the same uh, groups, if you will, in Western Europe and in North America as well. And of course, some of their allies here in the West Asia region. So I would uh, echo what you say and I would uh, tell whoever's in charge of those editorial rooms they need to improve. There has been a bit of an improvement since the Syrian crisis ended, or at least since the proxy war against Syria ended, um, and Al Jazeera did rein it back a bit. Uh, but definitely, um, I'm much like you, I don't really watch Al Jazeera, but if that is the case, they do need to uh, rein it rein it in. But again, I do want to stress, there's been a lot of good cooperation between Iran and uh, Qatar on a state level, on a diplomatic level over the past few years, and uh, hopefully that can lead to better relations in terms of how the media uh, cover things that are happening in both those countries as well.
2: Well, the German goal was ruled out, Isa, It's still nil-nil at halftime. Give us your take on the mother of all showdowns on Tuesday, Iran or USA? Who's gonna do it?
5: Um, uh, well, the Iranians have a chance to go through with just a draw, depending what happens in the England game, but they should go forward and win. So in the last game, they played really well against Wales. And a big reason for that is because they kind of abandoned Carlos Queiroz's defensive football and just played. They were passionate. They were attacking. They dominated the midfield. And I think they have to do the same against the States. They can't play for a draw. In my reading of football, when you play for a draw, you're almost on a hiding to nothing because you just sit too deep and you defend. And I think they can beat the Americans. And you've seen today that story of the official American uh, national team taking away the... Uh, Uh, the symbol of the name of God, Allah, in the middle of the Iranian flag, maybe as a nod to the protesters who are currently rioting and protesting against the uh, Islamic Republic. And uh, some social media users in Iran getting their revenge and taking the stars out of the American flag and putting that uh, logo of God's name in the American stars and stripes. So there are lots of mind games being played, but that's just going to, you know, up the stakes and really... Uh, make the Iranians motivated. Another thing is, of course, the comments made by Jurgen Klinsmann. Uh, now, Jurgen Klinsmann, of course, was on the BBC making all kinds of outrageous orientalist and racist comments against Iran. And again, Carlos Kirosh hitting back and uh, demanding he resign from uh, one of the FIFA technical committees that he's a member of because of those outrageous comments and inviting him to come and meet the Iranian team, come to the camp and uh, get rid of these preconceived notions, these racist notions that uh, unfortunately went unchallenged on the British state broadcaster uh,
2: just uh, the other day. Is Ali, enjoy it. We'll see you next week, God willing. Thank you for that live report from the World Cup in Qatar. Let's squeeze in our caller, Edgy, in Berlin on Qatar. Edgy, welcome to the show. First of all, my, yes. my apologies to the people of Qatar
0: on behalf of us German citizens. Um, one of our ministers was in their stadium the other day uh, with some very offensive behavior, as I would call it. Um, to be honest, Mr. Klinsmann's remarks on, on the BBC, I didn't see them, but they don't surprise me, because um, racism and Islamophobia is uh, rampant in this country. It's completely acceptable again.
3: Um,
0: Germany is not in a healthy state, Um, psychologically I would say. Your turn.
2: That's right. And uh, my sympathy is with them, of course. Uh, They do not deserve this. They have been led up the garden path. Little soldier Schultz uh, is uh, singularly uh, incapable, out of his depth in this current international crisis. Angela Merkel, from beyond the political grave is making far more sentence, sense and f- uh, expressing far more authority than the chancellor himself. And of course, he's saddled with these lunatics of the German Greens that that seek to return Germany to a kind of ruritarian pre-industrial age. They're happy that industry is closing down in Germany. Uh, George, the Greens, uh, it's, it's ideology. N- uh, most of their voters
0: are young people. They are misled, they're confused. They don't know what's going on. The SPD on the other hand, they are completely corrupt. Now, I'm not saying that the Greens are not corrupt or less differently probably. Uh, The SPD is a kid of,
3: uh,
0: well, I I don't know. uh, Germany under the Corona period. I don't know if you are aware, but that's, topic caused a lot of damage in in the German psyche. People are completely confused. Uh, The lies are so intensive and and ongoing and this It went from Corona into Ukraine into hating Qatar now. Uh, I I don't know, most viewers will not be aware of this, but uh, Germany held the World Cup in 2006. Uh, It was brought to us by somebody called, uh, we call him the Kaiser now. Uh, because we, he's so beloved, this World Cup was equally paid for, bought and paid for by, by well, corrupt dealings in the FIFA, wh- whatever. So the the hatred towards Qatar that is being, that is so on display now, it's it's um, well, it's very sad, but
2: it's 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 impossible to fathom logically. Uh, if 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 Qatar is so bad, why did you give them the World Cup? But if you're saying they're so bad, show us, tell us what it is that they've done that's so bad. And of course, they can't show anything at all. It's one of the minnows in world affairs. Anything that it's done is by definition minuscule in the world. If there's a list or a chart of tyrants and criminals in the world, Qatar's not even visible as a speck on that uh, chart. Edgy, thank you very much indeed for that call from Berlin. Let me do some uh, comments on Twitter. Ben on Twitter says, yes, Turkey and Iran both attacking a US proxy, while another basically surrenders to Ethiopia. Whilst Mali ejects the French, massive moves made really fast. That's exactly right, Ben. The tectonic plates are shifting volubly and rapidly. Crowhawk on Twitter says Klinsman knew what was expected of him when he got the BBC gig. I can only assume that uh, Masi Alinejad was busy in Langley, or they might have had her on. Melina on Twitter says, respect George. It's a shame that Qatar doesn't understand that the same people who spit on them for their gay and alcohol laws are also destroying Iran. Melina, that's exactly the point I was trying to make. Karate Master says the England team are wearing shirts made by people earning a dollar a day. Why don't they protest about that? David Beckham, he says, got 150 million off Qatar. Uh, If I was David Beckham, I'd have asked for more than that. Let me take a break. We've got the one and only... Sabi Salvati, coming up right after the break. Stay tuned. Now, she is the host of Sabi Sabs, a legend, actually. Now, uh, it's a podcast. She's the co-host of the Revolutionary Blackout Network. We've had her colleague on. Now, it's time to meet her. Sabi, welcome uh, to the mother of all talk shows. First of all, tell us, uh, how, is, uh, how is life on the outside of the mainstream media in the belly of the beast? Uh, You're in the great Satan, I'm in the little Satan. What's it like being an, an outrider, an outlaw in media terms in these countries? Tell us.
6: Well, currently right now, it's really difficult because of censorship. So a lot of us that do independent media and are independent journalists, that's the biggest hurdle that we have to deal with. And it's not just censorship on YouTube, it's censorship on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, all of these platforms, especially for those of us that talk about anti-war and anti-imperialism. It is very, it's more difficult now to get that message across to people because, We can talk about a certain subject for example if i talk about russia ukraine and it doesn't follow the mainstream media narrative then those videos would likely be pulled or demonetized Uh, and other people have been dealing with this as well so right now it's been a pretty difficult time but we're hanging in there
2: it's a bit hit and miss isn't it i mean i I, i've been on facebook uh, for a very long time and uh over the last couple of months uh, I've been basically strangled uh, on Facebook with, uh, with nobody seeing the posts and not allowed to even pay them money to advertise the clips, uh, refused uh, permission to promote, which is counterintuitive financially. And yet last Sunday, uh, I had a clip of 261,000 views on uh, Facebook. So either sometimes you get past the censor or the sensors off that night, uh, or he's fallen asleep, uh, or like uh, Epstein's uh, prison guards, the the, the cameras have switched off. It is a bit funny, a bit hit and miss, isn't it?
6: Yeah, I think that was one of the most difficult things uh, in the beginning when I first started, was figuring out the algorithm, and it's different now than it was two and a half years ago. Uh, Two and a half years ago, independent media was a part of the Bernie Sanders movement, at least, and left independent media. And they were doing typically well, like they were getting a lot of views and uh, a lot of subscribers, but then YouTube and Facebook, they decided to change their algorithm and make it so that mainstream outlets would be pushed to the top uh, of the search uh, choices and that independent media would be pushed towards the bottom. So now uh, it's harder to find independent voices on those platforms.
2: And you're one of the best uh, of them, and your, uh, your show is becoming increasingly popular, I'm glad to say. What are the main subjects? Uh, first of all, domestically, uh, because I need to talk to you because you're the, still the global hegemon. Uh, unfortunately, what you do there affects what we can do here. But what, what are the big domestic stories inside the U.S. that preoccupy your viewers at the moment?
6: One of the big ones right now, of course, is the midterm elections that just happened. The Republican Party just took back the House. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has decided not to reseek uh, a speakership or leadership in the House. So she would actually be the minority leader if she stuck with it uh, instead of the Speaker of the House. And so that means that it looks like Hakeem Jeffries is next up in that position. Uh, He's going to be very difficult to get any type of progressive policies passed. Uh, He's against progressivism, a lot of those policies that progressives in Congress uh, ran on. Uh, So for those of us that came from that Bernie Sanders movement, and I was one of those, those people, Uh, It's a very difficult time. Uh, We've seen a lot of the progressives go along with Joe Biden and people like Nancy Pelosi not forcing the vote on Medicare for all for everyone in this country during a pandemic. Uh, They have decided to just go along with the Democratic Party instead of going in there and taking over the Democratic Party. Uh, So... There's a lot of red team, blue team that still happens in the United States, but more people are starting to wake up to the fact that economically things are not improving. Uh, That's why we have a lot of strikes that are going on right now with workers. The railroad workers right now are deciding whether or not they're going to go on strike and that will affect supply chain. So what we've been advocating for over at RBN is that it's come to the point now where we need a general strike. Uh, voting for people, voting for the president of the United States is not changing people's lives economically in this country when we have two parties that are very much corporate and they support corporate interests and they put the American people last. Uh, a little bit different in the UK. At least you guys do have health care for everyone there. Now I did hear that it might be privatized soon, but we don't have that. We've never had it. Uh, and it's embarrassing to be one of the wealthiest countries in the world and to see that our leadership doesn't care about the people.
2: Yeah, of course, we've got a healthcare system that is uh, uh, theoretically uh, free to everyone uh, at the point of need, but it is in such a parlous case uh, state that it is driving anyone who can out of the public health system and into the private. Uh, There's now a waiting list to get on the waiting list for treatment in the British Health Service, which has long ago Uh, of course, begun to privatise, under labour governments, I should say, uh, key elements of the uh, work. uh, um, And of course, the uh, more money you put in, the more money these privatised elements are able to take out. It's very big business, very profitable. And uh, you're right, the direction of travel is in the direction of your system rather than you taking the direction of ours. let me talk about the war, Sabi. Uh, It seems to me it's slightly different, slightly better in America than it is here, in the sense that here in Britain, the entire left, so-called, and the entire right, so-called, are 100% behind Joe Biden and the war. In the US, at least, Parts of the right are not, whether for good reasons or bad, people like Trump and others, uh, Trump Jr. uh, I saw calling for an end to the endless subvention of billions of dollars to Ukraine. There's more opposition to the Ukraine war in America than there is in Britain. Is that how you see it? And if so, is it likely to grow?
6: I think it is growing uh, somewhat. It's not growing as as much as I would hope for, and that's because mainstream media and the censorship, um, we're not getting that message out to as many people as we would like, and mainstream media is not telling the whole story with this conflict, of course. Uh, But yes, uh, that is happening here. People are are getting tired of seeing billions and billions of dollars going out the door to Ukraine. uh, When we have people here in the United States that don't have health care, Homelessness has increased in the United States, our poverty situation here has not improved, but we have billions and billions of dollars to send to people in another country. Uh, And one of the things I like to point out in my show are what are those packages? What do those packages include? Because some people think that it's just weapons. It's not just weapons, they're giving them healthcare, they're giving them clean water. Meanwhile, we have a Flint, Michigan uh, that does not have clean water still years later here in the U.S. We have a Jackson, Mississippi that still has dirty water uh, here in the United States. So the military-industrial complex here is a big problem. There's a lot of money that goes to the MIC, and that's why we don't have more money that is distributed to a lot of these social programs that could help people here in the United States. Uh, I'm not sure what is going to happen, but I think enough people are getting riled up to the point where I think a general strike is eventually inevitable. I think this will happen at some point, but you have to have all players on board. Uh, the hardest, I think the hardest thing that I have or the hardest thing I struggle with the most is convincing people that Who you vote for for president, if they're running as a Democrat or Republican, that is not going to help you. That is not going to solve the problem because they are in bed with the MIC and they support corporate interests. Both of those those parties are owned by Wall Street. So it's really hard for me to convince people who have been conditioned to believe that when they go to vote for the president of the United States, that they're actually going to make a difference in their lives. And That rarely happens. Uh, The change that we get is not significant. It's usually crumbs. And this is why people in this country continue to struggle economically.
2: How do people follow your work, Sabi? How do they watch your show?
6: You can find me on YouTube. My channel is called Sabi Sabs and you can also see me on the Revolutionary Blackout Network on YouTube. A lot of people follow me on Twitter at Sabi Sabs two. That's the number two. I'm one of those.
2: Thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Thanks, Sabi. Now, Mamadou is in Baltimore, USA, and wants to talk about Ukraine. Mamadou, welcome.
0: Hello, good uh, evening, sir. How are you doing?
2: By the grace of God, good, thank you. What would you like to say?
0: So I would like to ask uh, this question, um, because following the news on uh, the mainstream media about the war in Ukraine, it all seems that uh, Russia is losing and Ukraine is winning as far as uh, what we see on television. So uh, I just would like to know your, what's your point of view? What the future looks like for Russia? Is there going to be a new uh, approach, a new strategy? What do you think?
2: Well, 80% of Kiev is without water, uh, lights <laughs> or heating. At the end of November, uh, I'm astounded that there are still people out there who think that that Ukraine is winning the war. How do you define winning when every light and every electricity station, every water pumping station uh, is out where you can't go to the toilet above the second floor uh, in the high rise flats that most people in Kiev live in? as uh, we heard from uh, former CIA man uh, just uh, on Wednesday on the show. I mean, how do you define winning? Uh, Russia can win this war if it unleashed all of its power. Uh, If not in an afternoon, then certainly in a week. Uh, But it has until now refrained from doing so. It is steadily crushing the life, out of the ukrainian forces still east of the dnipro and uh, it is deciding how far it will go and occupy the south the coast uh, of uh, western ukraine will it take Odessa will it go all the way to transnistria and so on all the while using its absolute air superiority uh, to take out infrastructural targets uh, that are leaving the poor Ukrainian people in in darkness, in hunger, in cold. Uh, so uh, it's ludicrous to even have a discussion about whether or not uh, Ukraine is winning the war. The only question is, what terms uh, is the Ukrainian government going to settle the war on? If they had any sense... They would have implemented the Minsk agreement, as Mrs. Merkel pointed out again this week, and then there would have been no war. If they had any sense, then the Turkish peace proposals uh, in April uh, would have been accepted, and the war would have ended in April. Boris Johnson flew there to ensure that they would not be accepted, and so the war dragged on. And now we're in the winter and Russia's superiority is beginning to tell, uh, crushingly so. And uh, by the end of this winter, there may be very little left for the Western Ukrainian uh, regime based in Kiev to negotiate uh, about. Sorry, uh, Mamadou. Follow Gonzalo Lira, follow uh, Scott Ritter, and you'll, uh, you'll get uh, day-to-day coverage of the war that I'm not able to bring you. Lance is in Canada on the same subject. Lance, welcome. I would wanted
1: to make a quick comment. An American caller called a couple of weeks ago, and he called, you are testifying before American Congress your moment of glory. And I will say this. You are probably the only person in this world that I do not think is after glory. And I don't think you you felt glorious telling them how they had wrongly killed a million people. But uh, I, I, I've always assumed that of you, and I just wanted to say that to that guy who Most kind. Might, might think like that, because, well, I mean, he's raised to think like that. He's American. But uh, anyway, I just wanted to say that I it's didn't transit like that. Comment.
2: There, is no, there, is no, yeah, there is no glory. Uh, all praise due to the Almighty, and any passing uh, illustriousness is soon gone and you don't take it with you to the grave. Lance, uh, what would you like to say well, was about Russia and the negotiations?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Like, the reality is, as soon as Russia gets the industrial capacity of Ukraine back up, and if they control it, then they can defend Syria. And then, of course, stealing Syria's water and Syria's wheat and Syria's transit land and all of, Syria, all of Lebanon's gas and things like that become more contentious more contentious because russia now has the capacity to project the power into into so how can a deal ever be made no matter even if they russia advances to odessa and then they give half of odessa back and half of the peers back and they make a deal they've made the minsk deals twice how can they live in peace who can enforce it won't they just be shot at forever and i guess then my question is is it all or nothing for them, which is, they don't want, but do they literally have to, I do not know, literally kill everybody?
2: Now, well, I of course, yeah. I do, I understand it, absolutely. And uh, I'm not in a position to speak for them. Uh, I'm not authorized to, and I don't know their mind. Uh, so I can't give you a definitive answer. I can only, using my experience and my, my wit, uh, infer what seemed to me, logically, uh, the Russian negotiating positions. And of course, as in any war, those negotiating positions change as the war changes. Uh, and as more of a price is being paid to bring about a settlement, the more one is forced to pay to bring about a settlement, the more the bill will be for the defeated party. And we are either at or past uh, the point of no return, whether it is bloodier to go on or to go or to use Shakespeare's uh, term. Uh, the, the reality is that Russia has paid a very high price in terms of the termination of its relationships uh, in the West, the theft of hundreds of billions of euros worth of Russian assets in the West. Uh, Germany has just nationalized uh, the uh, Russian uh, oil installations in Germany, the refineries and the uh, German investment Uh, Russian investment in the German economy has all been confiscated. Uh, Even houses of Russians are being stolen, legalized theft uh, in Western countries. So that's one part of the price that Russia has paid. The acceleration of the already existing trends in geopolitical affairs uh, are also a consequence uh, of as they would put it, having been forced to intervene uh, in eastern Ukraine to stop the slaughter of their compatriots, their co-religionists, the Russian uh, people in the east of Ukraine. The price is now very, very large. And of course, the cost of keeping an army of half a million men in the field and the uh, deaths and uh, and, uh, injured that they have suffered. This is a very, very High price. So the higher the price goes, the more Russia will extract from whatever remains of Ukraine as a price. But my guess, if I was in the Kremlin advising the president, and I assure you I am not, uh, my advice would be: a regime change in Kiev is uh, inescapable. You could not possibly make a peace agreement and expect it to. Stand with Zelensky. Zelensky would be quite happy to escape to Miami Beach, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, but you would need a new government in power in Kiev, and the uh, the guarantees would have to not just be copper-bottom, but guaranteed uh, by by all the powers, and with permanent observer status in Kiev for Russia that Ukraine would never join NATO, that NATO would not be in Ukraine, because, of course, Ukraine never did join NATO, but we now know Ukraine has been, NATO has been in Ukraine for all of this time. So just saying you won't join NATO is not enough. You need a, a guarantees that NATO wasn't in Ukraine. You need a new government. You need recognition of what will effectively be an eastern Ukrainian Uh, state of Novorussia, which will be part of the Russian Federation, east of the Dnipro, probably south uh, along the coast also. The terms are getting worse every day for a settlement. Uh, As to whether there ever will be a settlement, well, all wars have to end sometime. And I think that Germany might be the key to that the Germans might well be the first domino to fall. Their government might fall because it doesn't want to go on paying the price of being at the front line of American confrontation with Russia over Ukraine. Lance, thanks for the call. Comments are coming in on the YouTube chat. Uh, GES says, Sirius Report was an excellent guest. I had not heard of them. Now following, and Ricks195 says the World Cup and football should not be political, but we do have to remind many exploited Nepalese workers died during the building of the World Cup stadium in Qatar. Uh, the problem is, Ricks, uh, that there were not many or uh, Nepalese or any other workers who died building the stadium in Qatar. This is a lie, a carefully calibrated and deliberately spread lie. There may have been six casualties on the building sites of the stadia in Qatar, which is far fewer than the fatalities on any big contract uh, in almost any country. The Nepalese workers are not getting their fair pay In Qatar, no doubt, but they're getting a lot more than they'd get in Nepal. The Bangladeshi workers' ditto. We are kicking around footballs that are made by Bangladeshi workers earning 60 pence a day and no one gives a second thought to it. So it's really crucially important that the truth rather than the propaganda is imbibed. Everyone thinks there were six and a half thousand foreign workers died making those stadia. It is a complete lie. Six thousand five hundred foreign citizens died in Qatar over the last decade of all causes, from heart attacks to strokes and road accidents, not building these stadia in Qatar, Joshua Corden says, Plinsman's deplorable comments disrespected the Iranian team, culture, and by extension, their nation and government. Well said, Joshua. Uh, now, I've got my roadshow coming up in Sunderland. About a fifth of the tickets are already sold, and it's not until Tuesday, February the 7th. There it is there. Uh, so if you're in the northeast of England... Uh, or, for that matter, in the southeast of Scotland, at Sunderland's an easy drive for you. Make sure you catch me on Tuesday, February the 7th. It's the mother of all talk shows, Roadshow. Let's hear from Arman in Minneapolis about Iran. Go ahead, Arman. Hi
1: there, George. Thank you for taking my phone call. I heard your conversations and your uh, dialogue with other guests and very poignant, very important but it keeps coming to my head and I ask myself and I live in America and I'm Iranian, I, I ask myself why is that nobody is talking about all the slaughter and the killings that's been going on in Iran by the Islamic regime, which was installed by U.S. government and U.K. in 1979. All of these kids who have been killed in the current uprising in the past (laughs) two months, all of them under 18. Where is anyone's humanity when Iranians are getting slaughtered like that? And you're talking about a football (laughs) game between Iran and
2: USA? It doesn't matter. Why is that we're not Yeah. The problem is, Armand, not many people uh, believe that nonsense that you have just uh, spouted. The idea that the Islamic regime in Iran was installed by the United States is so laughable. It belongs in the, in the mental health wards, uh, I've got to tell you. There's certainly no one watching this program tonight thinks that the Americans installed the Ayatollah Khomeini, because if they had, they would not have spent uh, the last 43 years trying to destroy the Islamic Republic of Iran. The truth is that whatever you like or dislike about the revolutionary government in Tehran, it has the support of, the great majority of Iranians. Of course, there are millions of Iranians who hate it, many of them living in Minneapolis, uh, but many of them also living in Iran. Millions of Iranians hate the Islamic regime. But their problem is that scores of millions of Iranians do not hate it. Now, what the final outcome will be Uh, in Iran, will be determined by the Iranians on their streets, in their cities, if they want to overthrow their regime, like they overthrew the regime that may well have taken you to Minneapolis in 1979, the regime of the tyrant Shah of Shahs. That's a matter entirely for them. But don't ask me to endorse my government or your government fomenting social chaos and catastrophe in your country. Don't ask me to support my government sanctioning your people. Don't ask me to support my government making war on your country and your people because I will not do it. But my voice will not not be decisive. If yours is the correct analysis, it will eventually come to pass. You'll no longer be our man of Minneapolis. You'll be our man uh, of Shiraz or Estefan or, uh, or of Tehran. You'll be back in your uh, country, won't you? Uh, it's Spain 1, Germany 1. Don't tell me that football games are not important. Line 2, Michael in West London. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Michael. Hello, George. Can you hear me? Hi. Can you hear me, George? Go ahead, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. We can all hear yeah. you.
3: Hello. Listen, first time caller. I'll give you a couple of quid each time, but blah, blah. Listen, 20 years ago, I, uh, I, I couldn't stand you, I must say. But... Uh, you're an absolute really? star to me. Can you was hear me? That,
2: thanks. Yeah, I can, Michael. And I'm touched by what you said. Was that in the run-up to the Iraq War that you didn't like me?
3: <laughs> uh, I have a lot of Palestinian friends. No, but when you were a hero, was when um, when you were like uh, against Syria, because that, that that's that's when I sort of. That's sort
2: of when I woke up. Uh, we're getting uh, we're getting uh, uh, feedback, uh, Michael. Uh, switch off your uh, television or your your feed, will you, so that we can talk better. We'll try and get back to Michael. Uh, here's some more uh, of the super chatting. Uh, at large, forty-seven gives nine US ninety-nine, and Rafael de Gonda gives five US dollars. Thanks to both of you. Kiwi Dave gives five New Zealand dollars. Mars isn't invading Earth. Earth is invading Mars. Indeed, the War of the Worlds isn't really about Mars and a Martian invasion at all. I've got news for you. Uh, Fred Gano gives five US dollars. Love your work, George, even though I don't always agree with you, but usually do. Thanks. Thanks for that, Fred. I don't always agree with myself. Nestor Gonzalez gives five US dollars and says the reason why Saudi Arabia is untouchable it's because they have the evidence that the US ordered them to help orchestrate 9-11 to start the endless war on terror. And Nomayor One gives 10 British pounds and says, what do you think about the latest rant of the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, who stated that Europe is a garden, a beacon that must civilize the rest of the world? Well, it runs out of the same stable as Jürgen Klinsmann, and as the Orientalist uh, festival uh, that is otherwise known as television coverage of the World Cup. Barry Lim gives £2.50. Thanks for your perspective. Thank you, Barry. Nikola Bibrovic gives £3.00. Thank you. Let's try Michael in West London again. Go ahead, Michael.
3: Hello, George. Can you hear me?
2: Yeah, we can hear you. Now, go right ahead. i close you, sir. Listen, George... <coughs> You're always on about the supersonic
3: missiles that Russia may send or can send, you know, and it, it's it's quite uh, it's quite it's quite frightening, you know, to actually listen to stuff like that. But
2: yeah,
3: yeah. But uh, you know, I don't I don't think young people actually understand, you know. The, the, the actual uh, reality, things like that, you know. And, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, the, the, you know, there were certain sounds that sort of sounded like a, a siren. And I remember my brother, who was five years older, explained to me that an explosion from nuclear was nowhere near an explosion from an explosion.
2: Um, uh, the current uh, family of uh, nuclear missiles are 1,000 times greater than the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they were two bombs, one on each city. Uh, the uh, Russians have uh, around 5,000 bombs that are 1,000 times more powerful. Than the nuclear weapons that vaporized the population of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And if I make it sound frightening, that's because it is frightening. It ought to be frightening. If you're not frightened by it, there's something wrong with you. If you are ready and willing to walk into that kind of nuclear holocaust, there is something. Wrong with you. And I'm glad you and I can see it, Michael. Thanks for that call. Simon is in Boreham Wood, again, still in England. Go ahead, Simon. Uh, good evening, George. Yeah, I was uh,
3: I was just, um, I, I'm trying to watch the football as well, but I was uh, regarding the, um, the uh, hilarious uh, Tories who are trying to get rid of the, whatever the strikes are going on. What um, do you reckon be the best chance to, to call for a general strike and really see if we can really I don't know, ridicule into a final nail in their coffin. I think it might be a good idea to try that. I don't know. Well, but, um, yeah,
2: yeah, well uh, you could call for a general strike uh, anytime you like. You can call as often as you like, but that doesn't make it happen. Uh, the level of uh, political and class consciousness amongst the British working class is at an historic low. Uh, probably not since the beginning of the industrial revolution has class consciousness an understanding of ourselves as part of a class with specific interests which are not the same interests as other classes in our society has never been lower trade union membership has never been lower since the 1920s actually since before the 1920s and even the trade union members uh, have a level of political consciousness which leaves a great deal to be desired. I spoke to a leading trade unionist just the other day that, was, uh, that is in one of the unions involved in industrial action, and he said that uh, some of his members come up and ask him Will they lose a day's pay if they go on strike? That's the level uh, of knowledge and experience uh, that uh, many in the British working class still have. So uh, you can call for a general strike. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the whole working class could bring down the government, bring down the system? But it's as likely as me being on Elon Musk's next Flight to Mars. It's full time and it's Spain 1, Germany 1. Last call. My goodness, the time has flown. It's Richard in Wales. Go ahead, Rich.
3: Hi again, George. Health and strength to you, my friend. Um, I just thought I'd uh, lighten the evening with a a crazy old joke. It's um, so I was travelling to the Iran and Wales match Last week, but the plane was late. Oh yeah. But I still managed to make it on time for the kickoff. How so? The answer is. You've got me. I ran.
2: <laughs> Very good. Very good, Richard. That does all the best. All the best. Excellent show uh, tonight. All the best to you. Uh, I hope. I hope Wales can uh, get a good result, four nothing or so, against England uh, on. Tuesday. Thanks uh, very much for that uh, call. It's uh, pretty much uh, the end of the show. So let me make some uh, closing remarks, some reflections uh, on uh, where we have been. I read all the time. Uh, People ask me where I get, what knowledge I've got, and I get it from reading all day. And so I don't research these shows or these monologues. I have no need to because I have a sponge-like uh, brain that takes in all the information that I'm reading all day and absorbing all day. But the most affecting piece that I've read uh, this week, I read today uh, from a magazine that Charmin Narwani produces in Beirut called The Cradle. it was the story of the relationship between Western intelligence agencies, including my own country's intelligence agencies, and the, the murder gang, murder incorporated, the murder cult of ISIS and its constituent parts. And I've got to tell you that At the end of that article, I was left with the feeling that this must be, surely, please God, this must be the lowest that we will ever go. What we have done in Syria by supporting these throat-cutting, heart-eating, head-chopping, Islamist, fanatic mass murderers, is the worst thing that we have ever done. And we have done many, many bad things. But if there is a genuine history ever written, it will say that by supporting these throat cutters in Syria against the secular Syrian Arab Republic was the worst thing that we Ever did. And the article in question focuses on one person whose fate, which was shared by many, has haunted me ever since I had the misfortune to witness it. It was the fate of the American journalist James Foley, for whom the Americans refused to pay a ransom, some 22 other Westerners were rescued by payments of around 2 million uh, euros on average. They were rescued either by their families or by insurance companies or by their governments or by well-wishers or by fundraising. But the family of James Foley were warned by the U.S. government that they would be prosecuted if they tried to pay a ransom for him. He was just an ordinary journalist. He was no hero, certainly no hero of mine, but he was, in the end, just a Western journalist whose government turned its back on him. And here's the most chilling thing of all. The people who held James prisoner, in the basement of a children's hospital in Aleppo, in then-Takfiri-occupied Syria, were a part of a funding, arming and propaganda operation directly operated from London by the British Intelligence Services and of course by the American ambassador Ford at the time, the American ambassador to Syria. In other words, James Foley could have been freed at any time from that basement in Aleppo, just by a word from their sponsor, Britain and the United States, who could have told them to release all of their foreign hostages, and they would have had no alternative but to comply. But they did not. Instead, they created a terror funnel down which, through which, thousands of Western jihadists went to join the throat-cutting rampage in Syria I'd ask you to read the article, I hope you will, in the cradle, although one part of me wishes that you won't, because it runs the risk of losing your faith entirely in those that conduct our affairs in London and Washington. That really is all the time that I have left to me, but I... We'll be back here again, God willing, on Wednesday for the midweek mother of all talk shows. So if you've enjoyed tonight, if you're one of the 1.2 million now that's watched the pirate clip on TikTok, get the real thing on Wednesday. All platforms, 9pm UK time. Until then, good night.